Reflections on Sophocles' Antigone by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 In today's the material that we're covering is, is the prologue, the Ode of Entrance, the first episode, and the first choral ode. Now, in a Greek drama, the Greek drama was highly formalized, and the genius, by the way, of the Greek dramatist was that they imposed upon themselves rigid technical standards so that they had to work within the confines of an existing structure to bring out their drama. Uh, and Sophocles does this. The prologue, the ode of entrance, the first episode, and the first choral ode. This So that's what we have for today. This material essentially puts us in touch with the, the scope of the play, or the stage upon which the major issue is going to be played out. So what we get in this opening material is a series of definitions about the play. The play, in a sense, is defining itself for the audience. By the way, this is not a what you would this is not juvenilia on the part of Sophocles. It was written 35, 40 years before he wrote Oedipus at Colonus, but it was written when he was in his mid fifties. It's a serious and mature work itself. What is so I think important about this play was as a result of this play, Sophocles became a very famous man. Uh, this play had an impact on people of Athens, profound impact on them. I mean, there's obviously so many reasons for it, but for, for me, one of the reasons for it is this part of the story, what happens after Oedipus, was not terribly familiar to the Greek audience. So that when it first is presented, when the first issues arise, the Greek audience doesn't know who the good guys and who the bad guys are. The Greek audience doesn't know who's going to win and who's going to lose who's right and who's wrong, who's guilty of hubris or pride, and who's being more reverent, and so on. So Sophocles, I think here, more than in the other two plays we've seen, takes the opportunity to define the play to what would be much more of a fresh audience than the Oedipus material, because it was so familiar. So what I want to do today is take a look at the plays essentially Sophocles taking this legendary material and imprinting on it his own creative intentions and then going through a series of definitions about what's involved here. Here's a simple issue. We've got a little conflict. We've got a point of conflict, namely this body that's not being buried. And what does that entail in terms of, as we look at it, what does that what issues does that raise for us? So that's sort of what I wanted to do today. I, what I want to do is go through taking a look at the de sort of self-definitions of the play. At the end, the last thing, we'll end on the first choral ode. And I've, I have some uh, several translations of that choral ode. And time permitting, I'd like for us to spend some time with it because it's quite significant. In and, of, in and of itself, and also significant for the sense of the whole play. There's sort of two overviews to this thing that I want to start with. One is, before we even get to the play, and this is an attempt on my part to make this, see this in psychological terms or in, in archetypal terms, 
The play is the tension between two truths. Creon knows a truth. The truth that Creon knows is that there's just been a war, and in the war there were good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys lost. Now, by the way, Sophocles does not quibble with that. Sophocles does not defend Polynices in this play. It is not a question of Polynices. He doesn't. And when he reconsidered the character of Polynices 35 years later, he did not paint him with particularly favorable strokes. So he, Polynices is not defended. There is a truth that Creon knows. The truth is that there's been a war, a terrible war, an unnecessary war. It has ravaged the city. It was between good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys lost. That's his truth. Antigone knows another truth. The truth Antigone knows is that they're both brothers, these good guys and bad guys. So even at the level, see, of the, of the symbolic, if you will, or archetypal dimension of this tension, you get something that's still very much alive for us. Two truths, both of them true, one of them deeper than the other one. Sophocles, of course, can work that second truth, the truth of Antigone, because it happens to be, in this play, biologically true. Biologically true that Polynices and Eteocles are brothers, her brothers. So that so she is it's perfectly designed to have her appreciate the fact that both sides in this conflict are brothers. But still in all we can abstract from that and see simply a consciousness, Antigone's consciousness, that for whatever reason, biological or otherwise, a consciousness which recognizes that every war is a civil war and that both sides are brothers, and who then brings to bear intellectually and emotionally onto the situation a sensibility formed out of that kind of recognition. In contrast to Creon, who's got the job of keeping law and order and who knows that Polynices was out to destroy the city. So that's a kind of over, overview. I mean, that, that brings it in, I think, I hope, for me, it helps bring it into some psychological tension that we can begin to appreciate. By the way, Sophocles, lest you tilt one way or another on this issue, and you're probably, like me, more likely to tilt in the direction of Antigone, Sophocles himself tilts in the direction of Antigone. Uh, but he's not, he's not so stupid as to produce a drama based on some kind of simplistic this or that. There is truth in both of these statements. And the fact uh, that Creon's problem is a real problem is something we'll have to deal with. Well, note right off the bat, uh, Antigone says uh, on page 126, O sister Ismini, dear, dear sister Ismini, you know how heavy the hand of God is upon us, how we who are left must suffer for our father Oedipus. There is no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no, no dishonor. We have not shared together, you and I. And now there is something more. Note that she defines it instantly and instinctively as the hand of God. 
she recognizes not out of some theological preconception that she has to fit everything into, but out of some instinctive reaction to life, that this new burden is somehow related to the divine involvement. To, there's a divine involvement here somewhere. Uh, instinctively, she sees it in those terms. I think it reminds me of uh, Buber saying, uh, what happens to us is God's question and what we do is our answer. An instinctive reaction that way, which has to do with something like that. So this simply, this latest bad news, this latest outrage, is simply the next in the whole series of, of uh, sufferings which somehow or another comes to us as a result of the gods being involved in this life of ours. So the first thing, we, there's a sort of overview here. The first thing is this, the hand of God's at work here. It's terrible. It's terrible. We've got to do something about it. But the hand of God's at work. Now just be, even before we get into play, already we're into a kind of consciousness that is very difficult. Um, most of us, if we figure that the hand of God is involved in it, we would say, well, let's sit back. That's obviously the hand of God. Or somebody else would say, don't give me that hand of God stuff. We've got to do something. They're kind of incompatibles. Antigone says, the hand of God's involved here, and we've got to do something. She shatters that more comfortable dichotomy. And then the play begins to define itself. We're told that on 127 that Creon is insisting Polynices not be buried. So that's the pivot. And now we're going to say, well, okay, the main characters here, Creon and Antigone, are going to kind of square off. And we're watching this, and we're going to then say, uh, what does that mean? Is this... How are we to see this contest? So the play begins to define it for us, to lay it out for us. First thing, that, right after, in the middle of the page, she says, Polynices, just as unhappily fallen, the order says he is not to be buried, not to be mourned, to be left unburied and wept, a, a feast of flesh for keen-eyed carrion bird, the noble Creon. It is against you and me he has made this order. Yes, against me. First thing we do is we see the personalities of these two people set against each other, Antigone and Creon. The hand of God is the overarching thing, and underneath it, it divides itself, Antigone and Creon. In a way, I sense it as being a Sophocles' way of really bringing out her personality. She has a family relationship with this whole thing. She loves Polynices, so that Later, we'll get into the other sense of what's been violated here. But the first thing is that Creon is preventing this woman from burying her brother, whom she loved. And it's very personal. And it's not based on theory or theology or political considerations. It's very deeply personal. And uh, so the first way she expresses it is that this is an out, this is an outrage against me. I am not going to let I'm not going to sit here and let that happen. 
there's a sense in which this order uh, is is really throwing down the gauntlet. Uh, it's I'm not sure that's really in the text, but there, from this statement, you could get that. She feels it that way. She hasn't wait. She's not waiting to see if this menu will go along. She's now going to try to talk her into it, but she feels it personally. Her sense of commitment isn't waiting to see if her sister will go along, but she does want her sister to go along. So it's against me no matter what. At the bottom of the page, she tries to get Ismini to help. And you'll notice Ismini's not a bad person. She's simply a person who, despite all that's happened to her, and of course, Sophocles hadn't written that yet, she's essentially a citizen, uh, an upstanding citizen. And Antigone says, will you help me? And she says, well, help you do what? Well, help me bury him. Bury him? Are you out of your mind? There's a rule against that. Have you lost your mind? Against the order? You would act that way against it? Not a bad person. Simply somebody who's ne- who, for whom it is absolutely brand new way of looking at the world that you might do that. Antigone, again emphasizing the personal character of this, which is the first level of identification of this play, on 128, a few lines down, says, He has no right to keep me from my own. Creon, he, has no right to keep me, Antigone, from my own. Defined very much in personal terms. Those two characters. Ismini then reminds her of all the troubles they've had. And and towards the end of her little speech, about mid-page, says, Oh, think, Antigone, we are women. It is not for us to fight against men. Our rulers are stronger than we, and we must obey in this or in worse than this. So the second definition is men versus women. Men versus women. The hand of God, Antigone, Creon, men, women. Now notice, now Antigone says, towards the bottom of the page, okay, go your own way. I will bury my brother. And if I die for it, what happiness? Convicted of reverence. I shall be content to keep the word reverence in mind. I shall be content to lie beside a brother whom I love. We have only a little time to please the living, but all eternity to love the dead. There I shall lie forever. Live if you will. Live and defy the holiest laws of heaven. And Ismini says, I do not defy them. But I cannot act against the state. I am not strong enough. So, the next definition is the laws of heaven, the laws of the state. The hand of God, Antigone, Creon, men and women, the laws of heaven, the laws of the state. So, Sophocles is setting these up. He's saying, now, what is at stake here? What is really the contest or the problem? I want to reserve for a few minutes because we don't, at this point, as if we come to this play as 20th century people, we don't appreciate the fact that the holiest laws of heaven are involved here. But we'll get to that in a few minutes, but just kind of hold it in abeyance for right now. I fear for you, Antigone, as me says at the bottom of the page, and then Antigone at the top of the next You need not fear for me, fear for yourself. This is page 129 at the top. At least be secret. Do not breathe a word. I'll not betray your secret. Publish it to all the world. 
else I shall hate you more. She's a chip off the old block. Remember in Oedipus, Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus, Oedipus and Creon are having this incredible, Oedipus thinks Creon, he's typically, we're going to get into the, another version of the same thing. He's become paranoid. He thinks Creon and Tiresias are trying to take his throne. You know, that typical kind of paranoid reaction of the powerful. And Jocasta comes along and says, shh, shh, look, this is a family argument. Let's go inside. And Oedipus says, hell no. I'm going to do it in public. This is a bigger thing than that. And I'm not going to go do it inside. Same thing here. Antigone says, no, no. I don't want it secret. Let's have it out in the open. There's something about this that needs to be a corporate drama. I don't want to privatize it. I don't want to make it some little, get some little attempt on the part of Antigone to keep her conscience clean. A bigger issue than that. So Antigone says, I know my duty where true duty lies. This means that if you can do it, but you're bound to fail. That's a non sequitur, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it happens to be a non sequitur that Antigone picks up on instantly. When I have tried and failed, I shall have failed. No sense in starting on a hopeless task. Oh, I shall hate you if you talk like that. Now, I want to reserve what she says right there for a second, for a minute. Let me go back to this duty thing. Just to notice, because part of what we're looking at in this whole Temenos program is a sense of destiny, a sense of duty, a sense of calling or vocation, an impulse to be or do something that comes from someplace else other than the than the planning ego consciousness. And suddenly she senses her duty. And the voice of Ismini here is the well-intentioned, pedestrian, spiritually tone-deaf kind of voice that comes up around me. The first thing she says is, Antigone says, it is my duty. And she says, if you can do it, you're bound to fail. Antigone says, what's that got to do with it? It creeps in. This utilitarian thing creeps in so much, you know. You know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. And then pretty soon somebody's saying, well, 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 sure, because it works. Well, well, of course it doesn't work. Who said it was supposed to work? If it worked, it would be just the easiest formula in the world. Everybody would do it. It's not a question of whether it works or whether you succeed. I mean, this is that the voice of his meaning measures that impulse or that calling or that sense of duty or vocation. Immediately says, "Well, can you do it? Will you succeed?" And that's not even—that's a totally irrelevant issue to the person who has just heard the voice. Antigone turns on it too and says, "I shall hate you if you talk like that." And he will hate you, Polynices, and he will hate you rightly. Leave me alone with my own madness. There is no punishment can rob me of my honorable death. Now, compare that. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we made a big deal out of Polynices. Polynices, he's cursed by his father. If you, if you launch this expedition against Thebes, you will be slain, you and your brother both will be slain, and it will be a 
it will be a military failure and it will be a disaster for you and for thee and the hell with it. And Paul Nices says, I can't turn back. It would be cowardice for me to turn back. I shall go to my honorable death. I made uh, heavy weather out of that because it seemed to me to be quite a kind of an internal, eternal dialogue between Antigone and Paul Nices. And here we have Antigone saying she's going to go to her honorable death. Now, do you see, if you set those two pieces side by side, in monastic terms, this is called uh, discernment of spirits. You set those two pieces side by side, and you say, gosh, they're almost the same word. Can you feel or intuit discernible differences between them? Both talk about going to their honorable death in the face of circumstances that seem very likely to uh, conclude in death. Both refuse to turn back. Both refuse to hear the voice that says, look, turn back, will you? Turn back. This is what makes some of those scholastic theologians and the sort of Jesuit stormtroopers tolerable because they... Uh, they made it a point, you know, to try to make some of these, to take some of these subtle things and make distinctions with them. Because the spirit of Antigone uh, and the spirit of Polynices on this issue seem very similar, but they're worlds apart. And there are several ways in which we could illuminate that, but I'll just take the word honorable. Honorable for Polynices meant, he says, look, if I, say, if I turn back now, none of these guys will ever think I'm a hotshot soldier again. They'll never, lead me, they'll never follow me in battle again, which is a totally absurd issue because he'll be dead anyway. I can't possibly turn back. It's a, it's a question of honor. It's a question of military honor. It's a question of personal. I can't shan't be dishonored by having the throne taken away from me by a younger brother or having all my all my uh, generals look at me and say he didn't have guts enough to fall through. I shan't, will not be dishonored. Antigone is looking into the face of a situation in which she will be scorned by everybody and laughed out of town. So the honorable death she's talking about is honor that has nothing to do with the human prestige system. But if you read this just flat-footedly, in a, in a way, maybe Polynices was, went to boarding school and was raised on great literature, and he read sort of Antigone-like speeches about honorable death. And then when it came his time, he read into them some kind of corny human prestige system sort of honor and missed the point. Not well enough trained in the discernment of spirit, as they used to say. Okay, well, I just want to kind of make that point because it makes an interesting comparison. When I, so another way of saying it more, more generously to Polynices is that he didn't miss the mark by a mile, he missed it by a millimeter. There's something about that speech of his close to the mark. By the way, something came up when we studied Dante. We got into this whole question of sin. We talked about sin. Missing the mark is the, the most famous definition of sin and one of the things that as you read through Dante's Divine Comedy one of the sense one of the sense you get is that it's much more dangerous to miss it by a millimeter than it is to miss it by a mile.
because missing it by a millimeter, you also miss often you also miss the the inclination to scrutinize the thing and therefore notice that you missed. You miss it by a millimeter, you think, well, it's close enough. And so you're you're trapped in it. You miss it by a mile and you say, damn, I missed it. So there's a sense in which Paul Nice has missed it, just barely missed it. Well, I'm too much time on this. Then the the entrance chorus comes in and it's nothing but a kind of song of thank goodness the war is over. Thank goodness the good guys won. The enemy ran for their lives and Thebes has been saved. And by the way, here comes Creon and he has called us together because he's got something to proclaim, some proclamation to make and I wonder what he's going to say. This is page 130. And Creon comes along and he recites the woeful story of Oedipus and on page 131 he gets into it a little bit and says, no other touchstone can test the heart of a man, the temper of his mind and spirit, till he be tried in the practice of authority and rule. The proof is in the pudding. So this is sophically, this is a Sophoclean wink at the audience. We're now going to watch Creon being tested. Creon doesn't realize this, of course. Creon's just saying the word. Sophocles is writing it. We're going to watch him being tested. For my part, I have always held the view, and hold it still, that a king whose lips are sealed by fear, unwilling to seek advice, is damned. And no less damned is he who puts a friend above his country. I have no good word for him. As God above is my witness, who sees all, when I see any danger threatening my people, whatever it may be, I shall declare it. No man who is his country's enemy shall call himself my friend. Of this I am sure our country is our life. There you have it. Of this I am sure our country is our life. Only when she rides safely have we, have, have we any friends at all. Such is my policy for our common. Just stop there. For a our country is our life. Of course, the word in Greek is polis, which means something more than country does to us. Polis was the city, really. Polis was the was the great Greek one of the great Greek invention. This notion of the polis and it'll come up later in this choral ode we're going to spend some time with. It has a sense of, it means culture. It means civilization. There are layers of truth in this. Our country is our life. We're a little bit like the kangaroo, you know. The kangaroo pops out of the womb. He's about this big. And he's got to crawl up his mama's belly and get into this other little place and stay there for a long time before he can be a full, you know, autonomous kangaroo. We're, we human beings are that way. We live, we are cultural creatures. You take one of us out of the womb and put us out in the woods someplace, we survive if we survive, not as human beings. 
Now, what the mystery of the soulness of that creature would be, who knows? But I, but uh, not human in the way we are. Culture is a is what makes us human. The city, you see, what happens with us. Uh, Hannah Arendt writes some beautiful things about this too. What happens with the city is really the civitas or the polis. Sonoma, California may be the only city I've ever lived in. And I've lived in a few that have been there are an awful lot bigger than some California that qualify as cities in the way we define cities. They're not cities at all. They don't, they're, not, they're not the polis. So we, still, we ought to have a term for something that these things become after they stop being cities. They start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We ought to just take the name city away from them after, after a certain size. Sorry, you guys. You're now a metropolis or something. That's good. Something. But not a city. A city is the polis. It's where, it's where you still have that kind of connection. So there's a deep truth to this thing. Our country is our life. We have to give Creon his due, you know. I'll share with you what Maurice Bora says. He's a, one of the great Greek scholars. Uh, he says, Sophocles makes, makes us find some right in Creon, some wrong in Antigone even if we are misled about both. He built his play on a contrast, not between obvious wrong and obvious right, but between the real arrogance of Creon and the apparent arrogance of Antigone. And Creon, as with typical other creations of Sophocles and Shakespeare, for example, Goethe, we read Faust, the characters who are coming out less favorably in the play, still speak the truth in certain ways. Occasionally they speak a truth. They themselves often miss the point of the truth. So if you say, if you hear Gandhi saying, our community is our life, then you hear one of the dozens of two-bit hack politicians say, America, love it or leave it. You get two people, two two voices relating to a truth that really goes up and down the spectrum. At its bottom, it's fundamentally true. So as Blake says, everything able to be believed is an image of truth. Now Creon is not relating to this truth at its deepest level. He's relating to it at its patriotic level. Our country is our life. That's what saves us. That's where we put our faith. That's where we put our confidence. In our country. And not just in our country, but our country that is girding its loins to preserve itself. In pursuance of this, notice the stark transition from theory to practice here. Says all this nice... By the way, this set piece here, that sort of paragraph, starting no other touchstone, that is right out of, practically right out of the mouth of Pericles, who was the great political and military leader of 5th century Athens. It was typical political rhetoric of the day. Some people have surmised that Sophocles, who, by the way, was a friend of Pericles, may have had some misgivings about the, the rote... I mean, 
it was as though every political speech had to be salted with this kind of talk. And Sophocles may have been making comment on you. But then he moves from the standard rhetorical formula to the way he's... And he starts off saying, you're tested by what you do, not what you say. So here's this is what I say. And therefore, in pursuance of this up here, I'm going to do this down here, which is, Polynices is a jerk and I'm not going to bury him. Because you have to leave this guy out there for the dogs because we have to make an example of him. Things are getting out of hand. We've got to make an example out of these people. Otherwise, evil will triumph over good. Otherwise, the whole society is going to go to hell. He's like, he's like Dick Daly in 1968 Chicago. Look, you know, he looks out and he sees, my God, we just went through this war. See, he says, look out. Look at Thebes, would you? It's a, it's a mess. All because of guys like Polynices. You know, they, they get, they lose a political battle and they go out here and they round up the rabble from all over this area of the world. They come back in here and try to destroy our city. We can't let it happen and we must let, and we must make an example of this. I mean, it's bad. They were carrying colored televisions right out of the front window of Macy's. You can't let that. What happens to civilization? These things start happening. See what I mean? I mean, he's got a problem. So to really get into the Real tension in this play, you kind of have to walk in his shoes for a mile, you know? Creon's got a problem. How do you hold culture together? Creon doesn't recognize it as that. Creon would say, how do you hold civilization together? You've got a real problem. Mm -hmm. He uses, by the way, uh, the word yoke. Yoking. It, our translation doesn't highlight it quite as much as some others do. But over and over and over again, and I've discovered from a commentary that it, it is in the Greek, yoke, like to yoke oxen. So his impulse psychologically, already you can ana analyze his, his character psychologically. Yoking. There are two ways, really, of taking care of a potentially explosive or destructive forces. One is to yoke them, and one is to engage them in a transformative process. It's much more risky to engage them in a transformative process because you never know where that's going to go. Uh, but those are the two ways of dealing with it. And Creon is, in, he, Creon is of the yoking school. By the way, there's another thing, if I might mention it, that we brought up with in Oedipus, the idea of a floor and a ceiling. When we talked about incest, incest, uh, literal incest, there's the taboo against incest operates in the literal one, puts a floor on our our existence. We can't go below this or else we'll, we'll revert to pre-human existence, which is true. The impulse towards... And then the impulse towards incest also takes a, a higher form, which Jung called heros gamos. And the problem with the incest taboo is that it forbids both. Well, let's use the metaphor again, uh, here again. Creon says, puts the floor on it. We've got to stop it somewhere. We've got to call. We've got to draw the line somewhere. We've got to draw the line somewhere. And what happens is you get a ceiling on it too. Antigone is not acting, as we'll see in a few minutes, not acting out of a lower impulse, but a higher one. Antigone is acting in concert with the will of the gods. But he puts a floor there because of the rabble. 
And what happens is that he ends up with a ceiling that forbids acting out of impulses that are higher. It's sort of like imposing a law because if you don't, these rabble will just start behaving like barbarians. And it turns out that the law also forbids the Quakers to be loyal to their higher truth. Quakers are great. I mean, Antigone's like a Quaker. Creon comes along. He's just trying to keep order. And suddenly, here's somebody over there that says, I don't operate that way. Okay, now, what's happened is um, Creon has said, um, we've got to put our foot down, else evil will triumph over good and he's speaking to the chorus so the chorus says on page 132 Creon son of Menesus you have given your judgment for the friend and for the enemy as for those that are dead so for us who remain your will is law now it doesn't quite you don't quite get it right off the bat, what has happened here is that the crayon comes along and he says that, you know, the great rhetorical speech and it's sort of the idea that everybody's going to be filled with the, the ardor and zeal of his of his uh, determination to blah, blah, blah. And the chorus kind of mumbles. They say, oh, yes, and well, you've said it, and by golly, uh, mm, um, uh, your will is law. It's not exactly one of those great amen that Creon wanted to hear. There is a growing paranoia in Creon, but he's no total idiot. He realizes, I mean, there's a sense in which, at least unconsciously, he realizes that, as the pollsters say, his support is soft. <laughs> so he says, see then it be kept. And again, the chorus kind of says, uh, my lord, uh, some younger would be a fitter for the task. Well, no, we've got some other people watching the corpse, actually, but uh, what, uh, so they said, well, well, what, well, 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 what other duty uh, remains right? Not to connive at any disobedience. See, he's got, he doesn't need to, if he, if he thought there wasn't a chance that they would, he wouldn't need to tell them this. So what has to be brought out here is this kind of lack of enthusiasm on the part of the chorus for his plan of action. And we'll find out on the next page the root of that anxiety. There's an anxiety on the part of the chorus here about this, his proclamation. And it's brought out subtly in this conversation with the chorus at the top of 132. And then it's brought out less subtly and more comically when the sentry arrives. The sentry is, is a rare example of comedy in a Greek tragedy. Shakespeare's full of it, but the Greeks are not. And this century is wonderful. Comes in stuttering, out of breath. There's a great sense of dramatic ambivalence. I mean, I'm out of breath. It's not, it's not from haste. I've, I've not been running. I loitered on the way. I, here I am as quickly as my unwilling haste could bring me. In no great hurry, in fact, but, uh, but here I am. So the ambivalence is brought out here of the situation. And on the next page, 133, Grant says, okay, well, all right, now just 
Stop stammering and out with it. What is it? It's this, sir. The corpse. Someone has just buried it and gone. Dry dust over the body they scattered in the manner of holy burial. Come back to this holy burial in just a second. Okay. Creon can't believe it. What? The sentry goes on a few lines down. The corpse was covered from sight, not with a proper grave, just a layer of earth, as it might be the act of some pious passerby. Now this is where you really get an insight into the, what this proclamation against the burying Polynices is. Okay, the two comments by the sentry up at the top. Someone has buried a dry dust over the body they scattered in manner of holy burial. And then down here, just a layer of earth, as might be the act of some pious passerby. The cosmic law was, no matter what, you owe it to the dead to bury them. Because if they are not buried not in a, in, a, in a way that solves the hygiene problem. See, this is just a little thin layer of dirt. It's not a question of getting the corpse out of sight or worrying about, you know, hygiene or any of The question is religious question. And that is, if you do not bury them, <clears throat> their transition to the other world to the realm of the shades, will not uh, will be thwarted, and they will be condemned to a torturous limbo state. We still have have this in our own language. Uh, we we in our own tradition, we pray often for the dead. May their soul rest in peace. We pray that because there is the fear that the soul might not rest. Soul might be. Uh, trapped in some midway place, rest restlessly. The 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 mythic idea of purgatory is a way of grappling with that midway place where the where rest has not been achieved. And there's a sense that the burial ritual is part and parcel of a smooth transition from this life to the next. So the cosmic law was you must bury them, ritually perform the burial service, so the transition. Everybody knew in Greek society that that was God's law. So back to Antigone saying the law of heaven. And Ismini saying, but how about the law of the state? Everybody knew, everybody from the, from the merest of the peasants all the way up knew that God's law was you buried them. So, a holy burial has been performed. And you'll notice here he says, it was covered from sight with just a slight layer of earth as might be some pious passerby. That is to say, any decent human being who was pious enough to understand the the cosmic connection here, seeing a corpse would simply go over and perform the last rites. I mean, it was part of the divine 
law. So maybe an act of some pious passerby. Universally accepted uh, cosmic law. Elizabeth Wyckoff has a translation in which she brings this out a little bit in a slightly different nuance. She has the sentry say, For he was hidden, not inside a tomb, light dust upon him, enough to turn the curse. Just enough to turn the curse. And then there's more comedy, because it's subtle. But the sentry says, well, uh, of course, we all started pitching it to each other, accusing each other, and might have come to blows with no one to stop us, for anyone might have done it. See, Creon had to send these guards out to surround the corpse far enough away to keep, you know, keep from offending the nose, probably, but to surround the corpse because the impulse to bury was so profound in the psyche of the people. It wasn't just a question of keeping Antigone from the corpse. It was a question of keeping any decent citizen from the corpse. And not only that, but as soon as they saw it was buried, the guards began to accuse each other. Now, why would they accuse each other? Because of that profound ambivalence in their own situation having to do with what, they're, what they've been asked to do. They've been asked to, to stand guard in the presence of an unburied body against all the rules of God. And so any of them who, whose own loyalty to the state might be tested by loyalty to the divine laws would look for an opportunity perhaps to slip over and perform the ritual. So he says, we began accusing each other, for anyone might have done it, but it couldn't be proved against him and all denied it. And then a few lines down he said, we hadn't done it, nor knew of anyone who could have thought of doing it, much less done it. You see? <laughs> it's comedy. Well, nobody could have thought of done it, doing it, but, of course, when they saw that it was done, they'd accuse each other, because inside, you, this is a great example of Sophocles working in psychological ambivalence and presenting it to Creon. <laughs> of course they thought of doing it. They thought of nothing else but that out there on the guard standing around the court because, remember, their their god was Zeus. Remember Zeus? <laughs> I mean, he's up there going. <laughs> and all these guys knew it. So the chorus hears the sentry and notice what they do. They're slightly emboldened by the sentry's comments. And this chorus says at the bottom, My Lord, I fear... I feared it from the first that this may prove to be an act of the God. And what's important is they say, I feared it from the first. So now we can go back and reread the page before where they said, oh, well, I guess you said it and hmm, I guess it must be law and so I guess we'll try to do our best. You see, the reason for that ambivalence is that they know it's against the law of God. And now they admit that they feared it from the first and they think, well, this must be an act of the gods. The God, If we won't bury this corpse, the gods themselves will come down and get it buried. And Creon on the top of 134, enough of that. Don't give me this God's business. I don't want to get into that. 
or I shall lose my patience. Don't talk like an old fool, old though you be. Blasphemy to say the gods could give a thought to carrion flesh. Don't tell me gods. And here you get the great paranoid, typical, so typical of uh, Oedipus himself when we did the first play. Is that the sort of man you think gods love? Not they, no. There's a party of malcontents in the city. Rebels against my word and law. Shakers of heads in secret. Impatient of rule. They are the people. I see it well enough who have bribed their instruments to do this thing. Traitors and dupes. Traitors and dupes. Somebody's over there trying to do the will of God, right? Traitors and dupes. Traitors and dupes. There's some, there's some Quakers here in the room. You know how it is. And they try to do the will of God over here. And you, here's Creon saying, traitors and dupes. <laughs> traitors and dupes. <laughs> the psychology, Sylvan and I were just talking about, they, there's been studies about the psychology of paranoia. Alan Watts wrote a book called The, the Wisdom of Insecurity, in which he says there's no such thing as security. Uh, but there's but there's this thing called insecurity, which is the attempt to get security, the desperate attempt to establish security. Uh, and the and insecurity it sort of snowballs on itself. The more you and and so you get a you get somebody who is in a position of power, who who represses the opposite, the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is powerlessness, vulnerability. So the powerful tend to repress that. The I might say the rich and the powerful, because wealth is a way of being immune to the vulner, to being in, invulnerable. So the rich and the powerful, this is one of the reasons why it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. The rich and the powerful repress the vulnerability, the powerlessness, and having repressed it, it festers and then starts to come up in the form of sort of haunting demons. And typically, uh, psychologically unsophisticated, projected out there and start feeling that the, there's a communist under every bed or, or a capitalist under every, every bed. That I mean, somebody. Or the blacks are going to get me or hippies are going to, you know, whatever it is. It's, so the a paranoia of the powerful. And Sophocles, 2,500 years ago, is a genius at dissecting this thing. Ah, it's a party of malcontent. Shake it, shakers of heads in secret. So keep that in mind next time you hear the traitors and dupes uh, analysis of things. The century it is more comedy, really. Uh, the century says, I've got, let me, I've got some more things to say, and Creon says, I don't want to hear it. And he says, well, no, let me say. He says to him on 155, Creon says, look, uh, you better find out who did this. The century says, uh, to think that thinking men should think so wrongly and then the sentry is sort of, Crayon says, you better find that whoever did that or or you'll wish you had. And this Creon leaves and the sentry says, I'm not coming back. Bye-bye. <laughs> I've had it. And there's a wonder, you know, it's there is comedy here, but also if you want to do a sort of gestalt on this, you realize that the position Creon's in, it's the position, again, of the rich and the powerful surrounded by sycophants and and uh, cowards who test the wind and say what's needed. 
and maybe they say it half-heartedly and maybe they play around in it but surrounding oneself with somebody who's just gonna yes 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 and here's the sentry who who's not been who's not been around it long enough to have totally done that he his job is to come in and spill the beans and he gets chewed out so much that he's not coming back so now Creon, the century you see is Creon's last touch with reality if you do a gestalt on this if I'm Creon and I treat the, the bearer of bad news like this and he refuses to come back I'm cut off really then I'm in my I'm 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 isolated in my delusional system. So in a sort of a psychological way, it's quite significant that the century said. Now, what I'd like to do is end on this chorus, the first choral ode, because our, we had the thing set up. The hand of God is in this, Creon and Antigone, men and women, the laws of the heaven and the laws of the state, and then, and then we had a little set piece where where we get a picture of Creon, and uh, you know the tone of the play. And now we get the final statement about what's involved here. In this chorus, he says the issue is what does it mean to be human. He says the chorus, this choral ode, essentially is a musical way of painting the backdrop to the play. And the backdrop to the play is the whole history of human endeavor. So in the, the boldest of terms, Sophocles is saying this play is not about Antigone and Creon, men and women, uh, laws of the state and laws of God. It is all, it is about those, but fundamentally it is about what does it mean to be human? And the chorus comes in. So let me just read through this one. Wonders are many on earth, and the greatest of these is man, who rides the ocean and takes his way through the deeps, through the windswept valleys of perilous seas that surge and sway. He is master of ageless earth, to his own will, bending the immortal mother of gods by the sweat of his brow as year succeeds to year with toil unending of mule and plow. Had to get into the kind of Promethean, I would call it Faustian, but it's before that. It's the Promethean quality. He is Lord of all things living, birds of the air, beasts of the field, all creatures of sea and land he taketh cunning to capture and ensnare with sleight of hand, hunting the savage beast from the upland rocks, taming the mountain monarch in his lair, teaching the wild horse and the roaming ox his yoke to bear. And then moving into cultural. The use of language, the wind-swift motion of brain he learns, found out the laws of living together in cities, building him shelter against the rain and wintry weather. There is nothing beyond his power. His subtlety meeteth all chance, all danger conquereth. For every ill 
He hath found its remedy save only death. Boom, boom. Burst, bursting of bubble. Stage direction should say, bubble bursts save only death. Oh, and then a slightly less Promethean tone. Oh, wondrous subtlety of man that draws to good or evil ways. Great honor is given and power to him who upholdeth his country's laws and the justice of heaven. But he that too rashly daring walks in sin and solitary pride to his life's end, that door of mine shall never enter in to call me friend. So the chorus recites what appears at least at first glance as a history of the world, a cosmic history of the world. That's the backdrop for the play. The whole human enterprise is being reflected, the parabolic dish on which the whole human enterprise impinges is being turned and reflected on this little drama. Everything will be here. That's pretty bold assertion to place on a play. But what it ought to do for us is it ought to, it ought to perk up our antennae as we look at it and try to become aware of resonances that go all the way down to that kind of depth. You see, over and over again, you see, even in one of the major translations of this thing, you get, you see people... Uh, commenting on it as we have here and will again uh, as though it's simply a question of the fight, struggle between the individual and the state. Uh, well, there's that quality to it, but it's ever so much more profound. It's, a, it, it's the story of an inner struggle between two impulses, both of which have some validity. And it goes all the way back to the... Wonders are many on earth, and the greatest of these is man. Kind of Faustian thing. By the way, I, I must say this at least. What's translated here as wonders, most translators translate, translate it as strange, is the Greek word dinos, which means D-E-I-N-O-S, which means awesome or terrible or horrendous. So it ha it it it's a two-edged word. It does mean marvelous in some way, but but also horrendous, which which really is a much more complex word. It's more like the word awesome or horrendous. That that's more a, a rendition of the what the Greek implies. So then you get of the terrible wonders of. The cosmos, man is the most terribly wonderful. So that it goes both ways. And then that impulse in us all, that incredible impulse that fa that Goethe deals with in Faust, and that is, you know, Prometheus. The thing that that always throws us into more and more searching, mystery, penetrating. Trying to get at it. Every time you get it, and you get sort of assimilated, suddenly you're hungry to do it again, to go deeper in. It is in us all, and and the problem I think is not that it's there, but that it's uh, that we don't realize that it's that it's fundamentally a religious impulse. 
that is not a technological or civilizational impulse, a religious impulse. And so here's Sophocles 2,500 years ago, in a way celebrating that impulse, but recognizing that it has to be in the context of something. So here's this thing, you know, he's got this, he builds this sort of cumulus, rolling cumulus cloud of human endeavor, subduing the earth and inventing language and civilization, curing ills, and, and then, and then there, there's two sort of little, tiny, almost invisible uh, tripwires across the path. One of them is death, and the other one is pride, which is spiritual death. So it's a beautiful how he set this thing up here, celebrating. Oh, and look at that! Oh, it's there. You know, it's just going to keep at us and keep at us until we finally get to the bottom of this thing about being a human being. But watch out, because it will never cure death. It'll cure every disease, one by one. I mean, you have to die of something. But death is there. That's a limit. And this other limit, death is a stark limit. You can deny it, deny it, deny it, and then it hits you in the face. But there's another one that's more subtle. And it's the one where you step over into... A kind of a spiritual death comes from pride. What what in the gospel is called sin against the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable because you not don't don't know enough about yourself to ask to need forgiveness. But pride, if you step over that boundary, you step into this no man's land, and you fall. And and the Greeks would say, and you fall. Well, you might not fall. There's worse things than falling. You might just live out your life not knowing. This. Paul Roach translation, I won't read it all, but I, I recommend all these. I like them all. They each have a different nuance, by the way. If you read these, you get, you get a sense of what it's been like for me to go through Sophocles with various translations. These are not the only ones. There are two or three others. But I picked these three because you'll see how difficult it is to, to render the Greek into contemporary English because how varied these are. And you'll see how each has a nuance. I didn't share with you one. By the way, I should tell you this. Uh, Martin Heidegger has a translation of this ode. I'm not a philosopher, and Martin Heidegger is over my head. I can't understand it. But uh, his commentary on this ode, I, I thought to myself, he must have just read Goethe's Faust when he commented on this ode, because it was as though he got into this thing and missed the, the line about death and pride. At the end of it, he didn't realize that the other shoe dropped there towards the end. He kind of got into the mm, Faustian quality of it. Uh, but his translation reads like you can't, you wouldn't even, you would think he was translating another piece. So a lot of it is in the eye of the translator. You know. Creation, this is the Roach one creation is a marvel and man its masterpiece. He scuds before the southern wind between the loud white piling swell. He drives his thoroughbreds through earth, perpetual great goddess, inexhaustible, exhausting her each year. Wonderful stuff. <laughs> so what the rest of the play is in a way going to be a commentary on this ode. It's a play about what it means to be a human being. 
and how how it is that we we ought to fill our sails full of this stuff. We need really need to fill our sails with this. But also remember that there are these two trips at the end. One death. I don't mean trip in the sense of a trip. But I mean, maybe it's that too. But I'm talking about a little cord across the path you can't see. Death and pride. And of these, perhaps, pride is the more dangerous because it's the, it's more subtle. I must say, before this week, I never got it. Uh, when I'd read this play, I, I mean, I, honestly, when I... I didn't even. I, I guess I read that chorus. So just went on to try to figure out what the dialogue in the play was about. And suddenly this week I realized that chorus is it. He's making this outrageous assertion that he is. He's writing a play that has to do with what it means to be a human being. 